Hello! Welcome to the Panda edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Beck of the Huffington Post. I'm here with Anna Shemansky. Hello. I am Hi. not wearing my Lima t-shirt, which I need to I need <laughs> to I need to make right. a correction. <laughs> It was not a Lima t-shirt. It was a Loris t-shirt. Many thanks to my anthropologist colleague, Miriam Kramer, who informed me that it is a Loris and not a Lima. Either way, I'm not wearing it. We are going to talk about pandas at some point in this show, hence the title. But long before we talk about pandas, we are going to talk about Mackenzie Bezos and her billions and what she's doing with them and the difference between charity and philanthropy. We are going to talk about one of the most complex international auto manufacturer mergers that the world might ever see involving companies in Japan and the US and France and Italy. It's huge. But of course, we need to start with the big business and finance news of the week, which is all about tariffs. We are going to be talking about tariffs in China. We're going to talk about Huawei. We're going to talk about Mexico. We are going to unpack what on earth is going on with this rapidly metastasizing trade war all that coming up on slate money judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So the news of the week is definitely the trade war. Crazy, Oof. crazy. So crazy. Yes. I've kind of lost count of how much trade war crazy there was this week because now I'm looking back on the week. It was a long week, even though it was a short week. I vaguely remember a whole bunch of rare earths, this and Huawei, that. And then suddenly everything went crazy at the end with Mexico, because apparently Donald Trump is a little bit like Napoleon. He likes to fight on two different fronts at the same time. So Thursday, pretty late in the day, he tweeted that he's going to slap tariffs on all Mexican stuff starting June 10th. Like and all Mexican imports, which technically, I mean, I just need to raise this right up front, would include oil. Yep. Which would, like, 
basically be a $3 a barrel tax on all Mexican oil. So the U.S. refiners couldn't buy oil from Mexico anymore, and they can't buy it from Venezuela because we have sanctions, and they can't buy it from Iran because we have sanctions. And, you know, quite aside from just the general crazy, like none of this makes any sense just in terms of Trump's declared desire to bring the oil price down. No, so, I mean, so he said he would he would slap the tariff on Mexico unless they did some unspecified stuff to tighten illegal immigration across the border. Right. And I guess they did kind of sketch out what they wanted a little later on. And they said Mexico had to secure its southern border. Mexico had to do some other stuff. It's yeah, not mean, really clear what. That's the whole thing. I mean, ultimately, to me, this is far more about domestic politics than it is about economics. Oh, definitely. And it's basically insofar as there is a legal justification for Donald Trump to do this. And, and let's be very clear about this. This will face legal challenge. Yes. And there's a good chance that the legal challenge will win because the legal justification this seems to be incredibly flimsy. But the legal justification is basically Donald Trump can declare anything he wants to be an emergency. And then his emergency powers include putting tariffs on countries. And so what he's going to do is he's going to declare something, something, southern border emergency, and therefore I can put tariffs on Mexico. And that somehow, this is something that Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, came out with on Thursday night. Somehow, this is entirely separate from the U.S.-Mexico-Canada free trade agreement, which is like a treaty between right. the U.S. and Mexico saying we're not going to have tariffs. But even though we have agreed under international law and signed a treaty saying that we won't have tariffs, we can still have tariffs. I think the bigger picture is this is Donald Trump is now fighting a two front, maybe three front, maybe four front trade war. You know, there's China and now there's Mexico. Which are and two of the three biggest trading partners. And remember that he also fought a war with Canada, which is the third yeah. of its steel and aluminium. And there's a yes. simmering thing with European cars, too. And I think the, the broader thing is that this is a very erratic president who is basically weakening the United States' position in the global economy by saying we, we're not a reliable partner to you. We're going to do crazy stuff. We have a, a treaty we're about to sign with you, a free trade treaty. Meanwhile, we're going to make trade unfree with you for political concerns. And you know, he's just, he's doing bad things. And, and it may be hard to unwind some of these things. Like we're yeah. seeing already with China, you know, manufacturers and companies are rerouting how they do business because yeah, of what uh, he's done well, with well, China. Well, GoPro was my fav favorite one. GoPro like saw all of the tensions rising with China. And they were like, uh, yeah, I think what we're going to do is we're going to move some of our manufacturing facilities to Mexico. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what we're seeing out of this administration, especially in relation to China, I mean, the, the Mexico stuff is nutty. Who knows how much of it is actually going to take place. But what we are seeing with China is really, really troubling in terms of putting Huawei on an entity list. So I'm sure many of you know, we've talked about Huawei many times, but I mean, this you can kind of think of as like the Chinese Apple and putting it on a list, which means if any US company wants to sell products to Huawei that Huawei needs to run its business, they need to get this special license. And they're not going to get the license. Yeah. Or, well... So Google, for instance, has already come out and said they're not going to license their sort of flavor of Android to Huawei. Now, Android does also exist in open source form, so Huawei can still sell Android phones. But this is just one indication of the kind of problems that Huawei is going to run into when it can't deal with basically any American right. I mean, company. And Huawei has certainly been stockpiling certain products, but they can only go so long without access to, say, Qualcomm chips. I mean, at a certain point, you're, you're not just talking about harming a company. You're talking about putting a 
major company potentially out of business. Now, would Trump actually do that? He's already done it. Well, although he stepped back with ZTE. I mean, the question is, how far is he actually going to push this? But then, Emily, I think you brought this up a little bit just a few minutes ago. At a certain point, are things going to get pushed to a level where he is going to lose a little bit of control? Absolutely. I mean, you can't. And I think this is a theme throughout the episode today. You can't. Global trade is extremely complicated. Supply chains are all over the map. We have between Mexico and the U.S., there's companies making stuff in the U.S. and then in Mexico and then back in the U.S., right. crossing and, and, back and, and, and forth. And this is, this is the whole point, and we've talked about this in regard to NAFTA as well, is just that there's, you know, a huge part of America's imports from Mexico are cars. Like, and Donald Trump, for whatever reason, is obsessed with imports of cars. But it's not like Mexico makes a bunch of cars and exports them to the United States. Right. It's that bits and pieces of cars go back and forth across the border 47 times, and then eventually at some point, there's a car. Exactly. Now, the one positive I think you can perhaps say is that if we go into the discussion of rare earths, which uh, I... Let's get into a discussion of rare earths. Let's get into a way, because who doesn't love a discussion of rare earths? Yttrium, that's my favorite. (laughs) Which is your favorite rare earth? Maybe Lanthium. Oh, Lanthium is a good one. Lanthium is a good one. So there's, there's, what, there's 17... Rare earths, and they're not actually rare, which is what everyone has to say when they talk about this. (laughs) Um, But mostly China is the one that mines and manufactures them. They control, I think, like numbers vary 90 percent, 80 percent of the sale of the rare earths. And when China's back is against the wall, they they threaten to shut down all the rare earth sales. And that would have ramifications for um, electric vehicles, for iPhones, for just like tons of stuff. Basically anything electronic. Lots and lots of stuff. And so I guess in 2010, China did this to Japan. They were like, they were in a fight over some islands in Thailand or some, or Taiwan, sorry. And uh, they said, no more rare earth for you. And they shut it down for two months and it kind of backfired because a new company came up. There was a very brief spike in rare earth prices. It didn't last very long. And then inevitably what happened was that Japan, you know, the rare earth wound up finding their way to Japan anyway, and people also wound up using different rare earths well, instead of the ones they were. Right, and, right. and China's was, dominance of the rare earth market did dip after right. it did that, yeah. which is a lesson, I think, to everyone. Like, you can't, you lose when you restrict trade. Right. You can't, you can't mess with it so much. There's lots of different players. And I think this is important looking at what China may actually be thinking right now, because you did have Xi go to this rare earth mine. There's actually been discussion of the trade war much more in, in the Chinese media. And oh, there was this fa- famous phrase where they, yes. the Chinese media sent out this famous yes. phrase saying, yep. don't say we didn't <laughs> warn you. you. <laughs> yeah. But I think when you look at what happened in 2010, I mean, it, it, yeah, part of it was that China lost its dominance, but also you'd had in the years leading up to that significant growth in the use of these metals, like upwards of 25%. And then what ended up happening was that when all of a sudden the price spiked, you didn't have this supply. Pe- Companies started to find ways around. They started to use other things. And then the growth in these um, in these metals declined. And and one, it took one, a- yeah. And one of the interesting things about the rare earths, there's this wonderful thing called the Rare Earths Monthly Metals Index, which is one of my, I, I, I pay close attention to this index, <laughs> even though it only comes out once a month. But it was um, started in 2012 in the wake of this whole Japan thing. And people were like, people care about rare earths. And you know, how expensive they are. And so they indexed it when they started at 100 in 25, which was after the, they'd already come down from the crazy spike in 2010. That index is now at an all-time low of about 19. So 
what hasn't happened is any indication that rare earths have become in any way more expensive or, you know, that people are buying them up in anticipation of some kind of boycott. Um, but what China has, you know, China worked very hard to reestablish a lot of these relationships and these supply chains and to be seen as a reliable supplier after that spat. And so this is why I say this could potentially be a, a good sign of when it comes to global trade. We now just have such an interconnected market. And while Donald Trump does not seem to understand this, most other leaders do. And the question is, are they really going to want to jeopardize that for what they probably perceive as a fairly short-term spat? So when you say they, you mean the Chinese? I mean the Chinese, and I mean in this you could see in other industries as well. But I think in this instance, yes. Now, it's a big question, though, because I think China is trying to make this very public to make it very clear that if later on, if down the line, this trade war continues, Trump continues to escalate, that if they then do move to do something like restricting exports of rare earths, they can still appear like a reliable supplier, the adult in the room. They're simply responding to U.S. aggression. I think that's, if if anything, could maybe be like the worst case scenario of what they're thinking. And I think the best case is like, let's make this very public to try to scare the U.S., and then make them more apt to come to the table. Although I I kind of don't get the impression that anyone's making decisions here except for Donald Trump. And I certainly don't get the impression that Donald Trump is lying awake at night worrying about rare earth imports. No. <laughs> this is obviously true. But right now, China is in a fairly difficult position because they are negotiating with the crazy person. So it's challenging to come up with leverage. And right now, the U.S., for a number of reasons, is in a slightly stronger position. Now, China, of course, always has the leverage of the fact that they don't have elections. And so they can play the long game. But they also do have very significant short term and medium term concerns. And this is one area where, frankly, the U.S. is vulnerable. And the other thing that, that's been on my mind for a while is that especially if the tariffs take hold on Mexico, what Trump is basically doing is a massive tax hike. And yeah. the degree to which American households got any kind of a tax cut under Trump. And remember, most of the tax cuts went to corporations, not to households. Insofar as American households did get a tax cut under Trump, those tax cuts have been dwarfed at this point in many, many instances by the amount that households have to pay extra for imports from China and Mexico. I and I don't and think I, that's a big deal, actually. Big deal? Well, I don't think most households notice the tax cut. And so therefore, I don't think they'll notice the tax increase either. But, I could be wrong. I mean, if we slap 25% tariffs on everything coming from Mexico, I mean, they, they give us a lot of food, a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables. So you could start noticing it at the supermarket. But I mean, it's just going to be like a little inflation, right? But, I, I just don't think it's that big of a deal, actually. I think that if you look at polling overall, people in the U.S. do not support these tariffs. And I think that that's one thing. And I think it's also important to just kind of think about that Trade wars tend to not be linear. It's not like if you have a, you know, you have a 5% here and then all of a sudden now you have a 10%. Oh, well, that's twice as. It doesn't really work like that. It's that these things can ramp up and you can then have really, really big impacts somewhat quickly. Yeah, there's this thing called the price elasticity of tariffs, which is very wonkish, but basically it can go up to, you know, 250%, basically. So that for every dollar that you tariff an import, the price of that import can go up by two and a half dollars. So the point is now we... I still don't think it matters that much. <laughs> I mean, I think 
a lot of it just it depends on how long this lasts. It depends on what are the ramifications. It depends on what in my mind, it depends on what the U.S. endgame or the Trump administration's endgame right now is with China. Because when people talk about the Trump administration and trade, they often talk about this idea that you have, you know, you kind of have your your hawks and then you have your slightly more dovish by which we mean Steve Mnuchin. <laughs> but when you're looking at your hawks, there's a difference there because you have Lighthizer, who's, who's nuts, but he is like a trade hawk. He wants China to behave differently. But then you have Peter Navarro, who like legit just wants to destroy China. And I and the reason I bring that up is because if you start seeing the U.S., the strategy is not just, oh, we want to weaken Huawei. We want to, you know, change Chinese policy. But no, we really want to damage that economy. Like that's when you're starting to talk about really demonstrable effects in the global economy. And that seems that, to be what's that happening. What, that seems to be what's happening I, with Mexico, I agree. Right? Yeah. I think the that's Mexico, happening with both of them. The it's, Mexico policy is, I think, as far as I can tell, being driven by Stephen Miller. It's not being driven by any trade people. It's being driven by the immigration hardliners who just want to, you know, do bad this, things to Mexico. Well, to me, what, the, like, nationalistic trade policy looks like. It's vindictive. It's punitive. It's not really strategic beyond, like, we like white American people, we know like you other people, kind of like, it's not strategic, it's just a way to punish. And it does, especially with what's been going on with Huawei since really the beginning of the year. In all these different ways, we, um, the Trump administration has been trying to weaken this company. And it's not clear why. When they went to our allies and said, you have to stop doing business with this company, they said, well, show us some evidence. And they, well, they really there didn't are have legitimate, evidence. There are legitimate concerns about Huawei. I, I, I don't think it is completely wrong to say that we're a little concerned about the dominance of certain Chinese companies because of the ties to the Chinese state in their long-term and plans. The, and Australia and the UK have also, you know, put limits on what right. Huawei is and allowed to sell. I also think it's always just funny to note that when you talk about the real security concern with Huawei, the real security concern is that their code is crap. It's really poorly done, like internally, so it's easy to hack into. There are lots of vulnerabilities. This has been a problem for a long time, and Huawei always says, we'll fix it, we'll fix it, and they never do. Hmm. Well, yeah, fixing code. We should get Paul Ford back on and, and ask him about the problems with fixing code once it's written. It's basically impossible. And the last thing I would want to say is that this Mexico threat is coming in a week where that's been very bad for Trump politically. Yeah. We had the Bob Mueller repeating what he said in the Mueller report, which seemed to really make a difference and um, sort of put a little more momentum behind all the impeachment talk. And it does seem that Trump reacts to political threats at home with like escalation of the trade war. Yeah. Which I and, guess and, is good. It's and, better than a and war. And I think war. what we the one the <laughs> one thing we know for sure is that we are in presidential election campaigns. You know where one side is Donald Trump. You know things are going to get bare knuckled. That's certain. It is nothing is going to simmer down. Nothing. The temperature is not going to drop between now and November twenty twenty. No, and it's much less likely now that USMCA is actually ratified, and there it, until Trump has negative consequences. Until he can really see that this is hurting him in any way, there's just absolutely zero evidence that he's going to change policy. Why would he? Uh, now, I need to ask you one question about USMCA, which is basically NAFTA 2.0. NAFTA is still in effect. Yes. If USMCA is not ratified, does it make any difference? It won't make any difference like in the near term. No, no. But I guess it's more just a discussion of, OK, well, it creates this feeling of uncertainty, though, because you're like, OK, we have this other deal. 
we think it's going to go in place. We're not sure if it's going to go in place. Are we going to be making significant long-term investments and we don't really know? No, granted, there aren't huge differences <laughs> between NAFTA and NAFTA 2.0, but this is the problem with these trade wars. It This is why it can have this negative impact and, on so and many the businesses. One, and the one thing which Trump hasn't done, but who knows, he's crazy, he could do it, is unilaterally withdraw from NAFTA. Yes. Yeah, and that is the big fear. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Talking about international trade and, and cars, I mean, they are also part of big international supply chains now. They used to be, once upon a time, a world where car companies were national. And you'd have the American car companies and the Japanese car companies and the French car companies and the English car companies. I'm old enough to remember when there were English car companies. But now we're talking about the potential for an American, French, Italian maybe even Japanese company, all four countries, one company. This and, is the and, potential. This and is the what's happening. And the thing that fascinates me about this, just to, so what we are talking about here is that the Italians and the French got together. The Italians, which is basically the Italian government and the Agnelli family, control Fiat Chrysler, which is an Italian-American car company, which was created when Fiat, an Italian company, bought Chrysler, an American company, which was done very much with the involvement of the American government was involved in those negotiations. Now the Italian government has approached the French government, which is the major sort of important shareholder in Renault, and said, we should merge. And it kind of weirdly seems to make sense for both sides. This is one of the very few times where one company said, we want to buy some other company. And the shares of the acquirer went up. The shares of Fiat, which is offering to buy Renault, went up on this because people say, yeah, actually, it makes sense for Fiat to buy Renault. And the French government is saying, yep, makes sense for us too. And so the shares of Renault went up. And so, you know, as you say, at that point, you have the French and the Italians and the Americans. Like the Americans are kind of, they've stepped away now because they've sold Chrysler. They don't want anything to do with it anymore. But the French and the, and the Italians have all got together. They've done this deal. The Japanese were the people who defenestrated Carlos Ghosn, and they were trying to meddle in the whole merger or not between Renault and Nissan. And now they're in a kind of weird position because they're feeling left at the altar, and they don't really want to give up Nissan as a great Japanese company. But eventually, everyone kind of assumes that Nissan will merge into this company as well. So then you'll have the French, German, Japanese, Italian. That's I mean, what I'm yeah, saying. It's, it's wild. It's well, crazy. And I think it's interesting because we're seeing these seemingly different but very, very closely related trends in the auto industry right now, where on the one hand, you're seeing this discussion of needing scale and combining and merging. But then on the other hand, you see these layoffs and becoming more nimble and this idea of, in a certain sense, becoming smaller. And these are both tied to the same worry or and and also potentially hope, which is that the auto industry is changing. It's changing dramatically. And you're going to need access to money for research and development that will enable you to compete in this new market. And in one way to do that is to get scale. The other way to do that is to become smaller and more nimble. And so what you're seeing with 
GM, for example, is there. They've created a subsidiary called Cruise, which can get money directly from SoftBank and other investors because they don't have that much money themselves to invest in all of this AV and EV stuff. Meanwhile, as Anna was saying, like a company like Ford is basically getting out of the passenger car business altogether because they they want to just concentrate on the one profitable thing that they're good at, which is trucks. Well, and I think Ford is also, they have some type of thing with VW, I think, as well, to share some tech as well. Because part of the reason of what Ford is doing has been with its layoffs, same with GM, is that they are shifting money away from the legacy industries and towards not, you know, EV, but autonomous, but also just overall connectivity, trying to rethink what ride sharing is going to do to the auto industry, really having to rethink what your products are and also who your competitors are, because it's not just going to be a matter of competing with the Fiat Chryslers and Renaults of the world. It's also going to be competing with Alphabet until it goes bankrupt, competing with Tesla. <laughs> you know, so this is a... Or possibly buying Tesla. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Probably more likely. So this is really a interesting and, you know, quickly changing environment. What's interesting, too, to me was the um, the big personalities. Like, it's almost like I think someone wrote a piece on this, but it's like Game of Thrones in the auto industry because it's like Sergio Marchioni, you know, dies and then Carlos Ghosn literally goes to jail. These are like these two outsized personalities. And with them out of the picture, it does seem like this that was sort of um, like a catalyst for this merger to actually happen and for like a major transition in the whole right. industry. Mm-hmm. Like the, the CEOs of Fiat and Renault are not like the larger than life characters right. that they were right. just so they this can time talk. last year. And <laughs> the person who really seems to have orchestrated this is, what's his name? John Elkan, mm-hmm. who's the Agnelli Air, mm-hmm. who's who's the chairman of what's it called Axor? Axor, Axor, which is the Agnelli like family mm-hmm. Holdco, and he's just like, yeah, this makes sense. Let's do this. But Let's he's not it. he's not an empire builder in the way that someone like Carlos Ghosn was, right? And he doesn't um, have the ego. But and and on some level, he's just a kind of very kind of like green eye shades kind of long term businessman saying we need to, as Anna says, get a whole bunch of scale in order to compete in this terrifying new world but that and, means- and eventually create you know I, I hate to use this word like the word the car companies use the word platform all the time and no Everybody one really, uses knows, the word really no one really knows what the, what the word platform is but ultimately we want to build a platform which we can use to incorporate even like mitsubishi and other companies and they can all just join our you know, our platform and the bigger we get, the better. And I think that was Marchione's, one of his visions. But what I think is that it comes with these mergers, whether they succeed or fail, does come back to personalities and leadership. So on the one hand, it's like you have these larger than life leaders out of the picture so you can do the merger. But then the question maybe is, is the merger going to work without, you know, some charismatic people leading the charge and like making those cultural meshings happen you know the auto industry has kind of like a sketchy history when it comes to mergers right well i mean it's a a good question it has a a sketchy history when it comes to acquisitions right so when ford was doing its big buying spree and bought like jaguar and aston martin and all of that kind of stuff um they bought them and then they didn't really know what to do with them Mm -hmm. and they kind of let kept them on as weird subsidiaries or when you know bmw buys rolls royce or Mm -hmm. something like that you're like well okay but if it's a genuine sort of platform merger it tends to be better like there's a reason why general motors is an agglomeration of a whole bunch of different brands Mm -hmm. because it kind of makes sense well i think daimler chrysler what what category does that fall into well that's now fca 
Right, but it was Daimler Chrysler was bad news bear, right? I mean, it didn't work. Well, I mean, it didn't work because all of the American car companies went bust right. and it had a whole bunch of debt. <laughs> but I don't think that the merger between Daimler and Chrysler was itself, I don't know, was it bad? I can't even remember anymore. They were considered a failure. Yeah. <laughs> I do think one of the things that's interesting in terms of just changing leadership styles is also Marciano, one of the part of the reasons he was very good at what he did was that he was also at a time where you could bully governments and unions around a bit more because of the overall economic and political landscape. And I think that has changed a bit. And I think that's part of the reason, too, that this has thus far been more successful is because the current leaders kind of understand that political environment a little bit more. They come from a lot of the same elite places that the people in government are that they're talking to. And they understand that, look, if we're going to get this through, we can't just push our way through. We can't say, yeah, we're going to close all these plants and you just have to deal with it. They have to play ball a little bit more. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So let's talk about Mackenzie Bezos, who became a gazillionaire in her own right after she divorced Jeff Bezos. And then almost immediately decided that she was going to sign the giving pledge and write a letter saying that she was going to start giving away her money and she wanted to keep on doing it until there's nothing left in the safe, which I kind of like that. I mean, she's not the first billionaire to talk in such terms. I know that Mike Bloomberg has, but he actually has practical difficulties in terms of how is he going to give away all of his money when nearly all of his money is tied up in this highly illiquid thing called Bloomberg LP, whereas she doesn't. She All of her wealth is tied up in highly liquid Amazon stock, which she can sell whenever she wants. And so she's going out and she said something quite interesting, which was basically, if you have this little voice in your head saying, wait a minute, wait until you work out exactly what the best way to spend this money is before you spend it. That's God's way of telling you basically just spend it now and front load it. And of all of the letters that I've seen on the Giving Pledge site, there are now hundreds of them. She's one of the people who's most unambiguous about really trying to front load her giving and saying like, I'm not going to wait for some perfect opportunity to arrive. I'm just going to be like as charitable as I can starting today. And I think that's a good general feeling. I, I think so. I mean, I think you'd still probably want to make sure that you're giving money in a way that actually does something, I would hope. I mean, well, I mean, one of the things is that if you approach it from a charitable perspective rather than from a philanthropic perspective, then it's very easy to do that. So this is the the difference between charity and philanthropy is basically charity is, you know, you're walking down the street and someone who's clearly poor asks you for some money and you give them money and it is obvious that they need the money or want the money and they can use the money and then it's done. And it's basically, you know, helping people out in need. And philanthropy is much more, you know, about systemic changes and making the world a better place over the long term and, you know, putting money into things like eradicating malaria or something like that, which will, you know, take billions of dollars and take decades. And you you try and create organized 
programs with randomized controlled trials where you prove that certain interventions have a certain effect so that then governments look at that and say, oh, we should do that too, and all of this kind of thing. And that one is much harder. And you and people get really hung up on on like measuring impact. But with charity, like people don't bother measuring impact very much. They're just like, you need this money, here's some money, you're better off, problem solved. Uh-huh. That's how JP Morgan you know, gave away a lot of his money, was on a much more much more at the charitable end of things. And I don't have any problem with charity. And in terms of charity, if you just want to give away money, there's almost no limit to how much you can give away quite quickly. Oh, that's so interesting because I've seen several people say, like, it's really hard to give away so many billions of dollars. But you're saying, nope, it's totally fine. It's totally no problem. So there was this guy, Dennis Feely, I think his name was. He created a chain of duty-free stores and became a gazillionaire and then gave away about $3 billion, I think, in total through this thing called the Atlantic Philanthropies. And now he's down to his last couple of hundred thousand and he's living in a shack in California and perfectly happy. It's it's entirely doable. I guess I would just say if you're trying to think, well, I have just this, all this money's kind of dropped in my lap. What am I going to do with it? Yeah, you can just like, I know you're not saying this, Felix, but like just give it to people on the street. But you're saying, well, well, you can do that. Is that really going to do much? Or could you put it towards something that could help to dramatically reduce homelessness? Like which of those seems to be a better use of that money? Right, And, so, and that's the whole point, right, is this whole thing, which is super, super popular among philanthropy types is to obsess about exactly what you're talking about, better use of the money. Should I do A or should I do B? Which one has better return on investment? Which one has higher impact? And people get super caught up on this. And then eventually they wind up in these perpetuities where 95% of the money is invested in hedge funds and they just give away 5% (laughs) that, you know, because they reckon that the increase of the money in the hedge fund will have future benefits which outweigh the oh my god it gets so complicated but that comes back to the best way they could spend their money is to lobby to have their taxes raised well one of the weird things that has really become obvious with the bezos letter is that you know jeff bezos and or mckenzie bezos between them made 35 billion dollars in her case over the past however many years and they will never pay taxes on that income. That money that they made is going to go entirely untaxed. And there's this general social contract that we live under that says, you know, the people who make the most money will pay the most taxes and the people who make the least money will pay the fewest taxes. And what she is doing here is effectively doing an end run around that. And it is not her fault, to be clear. But on a level of public policy, it really would make a huge amount of sense to make sure that when she sells her stock or gives away her stock, like she has to pay taxes on that sale yeah. before it can be used for any kind of philanthropic purpose. No, but th- that's not what happens. No. no. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that that's, I think you're Wild. completely right about that. I mean, I do think like this is an instance where it's a, when you get into wealth taxes, it can get complicated. And I mean, I think there are arguments on both sides, but I think something like this, that's a, it's a discrete event it seems like it's not going to be that complicated. And and this is going to be an issue that is more and more an issue moving forward. So I agree. I do think that we need to get to a point where we really are rethinking laws around these types of charitable Yeah, like uh, she, she shouldn't get to decide what the best use of that money is. I mean, 
Well, I mean, in, well, she, she, she should. She should. I mean, like, she, she needs her should, money. She gets to decide what the taxes are for. She decide what the best use of the post-tax money is. The post-tax right. money. But yeah. this is like sidestepping. We have a government. We have public policy. Like, they have to do lots of mundane stuff that no rich person would ever donate money to, like fix the damn roads and, you know, um, shore up. Medicaid and just like lots of boring plumbing stuff that like if you skip out on your taxes and you want to do like some sexy philanthropy or even charity, it isn't the best use of you could argue ever the best use of these rich people's money. The best use is really to fund the government and well, I think that I, have I, a democratically elected um, in in aggregate. You're absolutely right. Yes, I, yeah. in a perfect world, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I, I agree. In a perfect world. Yes, <laughs> in a world where we are using our tax dollars to invest in. Education, K through twelve, and higher education in healthcare, in better infrastructure. I mean, I, yes. Then I completely agree that we should have higher tax rates and use the money to fund the things that will help more people and also just help the economy in general. But I also do think that the problem is we don't live in a perfect world. That's not the problem. And I know, but I, I think I it's, think it's not completely unreasonable for sometimes people to be like, okay, well, you're going to take the tax dollars, you're going to spend most of them subsidizing middle class old people, which is fine. But is that also the best use? I mean, we no, no. That's not what anyone's saying. The, the the point is that the society fails to operate unless people pay their fair share of taxes. And when you have a society where the very, very richest zero point zero 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 one percent are simply not paying taxes on the money that they've earned, that just destroys the social contract. Yeah. But can we can we say something else about the Mackenzie Bezos thing? Yes. It's the most passive aggressive move by an ex-wife ever <laughs> because every story that writes about her generous, you know, she's going to give away all her money. They all mention that Jeff Bezos has not committed to the giving pledge and we don't know what he's going to do with his money. So every story makes her seem really giving and him seem really He he, he of course famously went on stage <laughs> once and said that he has made so much money from Amazon. The only way that he could possibly imagine of giving it away was by literally throwing it into space. <laughs> and so he's that he's putting he's, he's putting like two billion dollars a year into Blue Origin because it's literally the only the only thing that his massive brain can encompass, which would involve being able to spend that much money. So it does seem like kind of this like passive aggressive slap in the face to her ex, who is like one of the least philanthropic billionaires in the world. Is that accurate? I think I think insofar as he was philanthropic pre-divorce, that was in hindsight more her than him. Yeah. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. Okay. What's your number, Emily? Two. Why is your number two? Because there are two types of airport people. <laughs> oh, it's the airport thing. <laughs> I read it in the Atlantic. There's two kinds. Which um, kind are you? Which do you think? You get to the airport early. For sure. This you're, you're, you're a good mom. Oh, yeah. I get to the airport early, and the other kind of person is the one who cuts it just really close to the wire, and that kind of person just hearing about cutting it close to the wire to get to the airport makes me feel anxious. Like, my heart is... 
racing right now, thinking about how stressful it is to not leave yourself any time to get through the gate. One of the things which that particular Atlantic article didn't go into is this question of the opportunity cost of waiting at the airport. And I think that once upon a time, when you got to the airport three hours early and you were stuck at the gate and you were just sitting there twiddling your thumbs, you kind of felt this is horrible and I don't want to be here and why did I get here so early? And now that we are all living in our devices anyway, I feel like the opportunity cost of waiting at the gate has declined. And so this idea, this kind of quasi-economic idea that used to be floating around the economy of blogosphere saying that, like, statistically speaking, you should miss 5% of your flights because that way you are optimizing your time and blah, 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 blah. I feel like that math has changed in the world of smartphones. But I think it's also like a psychological issue, like the Atlantic piece was good at outlining how the people that are late have their own specific anxiety about, like, traveling and air travel. And so they're, like, procrastinating dealing with air travel by being late. And then at the end, because they get that like surge of adrenaline from like the worry of being late, it kind of pushes aside all the other fears. And no, okay, yeah, go maybe. Ahead. I, I make say I'm I'm also someone who gets to the airport like four hours early. <laughs> but I the only and I, I'll agree with you that I think it is like there you can almost always like work on a project or something at the airport. The only thing I will say is when you are spending that time at LaGuardia, Ugh. you do it, start it, to it, rethink. It, your it, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, it's I'm actually entirely a function of what time the flight is. If the flight is in the evening, I can get there early, no problem. If it's an early flight, I am not going to set my alarm for like 4.30 in the morning when I can set it for 5 o'clock. I will take mm. that extra 30 There's minutes sleep. Then too. So I'm a morning person, so I always get up super early. But I have been so early to flights that like most of the airport isn't open. <laughs> that like they made me wait in an area <laughs> because they were like, I'm sorry, we're not opening the rest of this airport yet. <laughs> My number is $470 million, which is the amount of money that Sundar Pichai earned in 2018, which is obviously a lot of money. And it wasn't just that like he gets a salary of $470 million. Obviously, there were a bunch of stock awards that he got awarded in previous years, and they all vested, and he made $470 million, which is kind of amazing given that he's not even the CEO of Alphabet. He's the CEO of a subsidiary of Alphabet called a fairly, a fairly important subsidiary. Aware <laughs> Weren't all the stories this week about how Google has a, a big temp workforce now and like right. and they don't make four hundred and seventy. They do not make four hundred and seventy million dollars. Oh yeah, God. but what? But the news this week is that having made four hundred and seventy million dollars in twenty eighteen and similarly large amounts of money in twenty seventeen and twenty sixteen, Sundar Pichai then turned down a you know hundred million dollar plus stock award from the board for 2019, saying, yeah, I think I've made enough money. The optics of earning this much money and taking this much money in in stock awards is a little bit bad. And so now what we have, weirdly, is a non-founder CEO who doesn't have like a massive stake in the company. And so like Elon Musk, you know, when the value of the company goes up, then he becomes billions of dollars richer anyway. We have a non-founder CEO who's just kind of the CEO on a very modest annual salary running the company by all accounts, you know, pretty well, he's one of the best respected CEOs in Silicon Valley and just not getting paid for it. And everyone's kind of looking at each other going, wait, hang on a sec, maybe we don't need to pay CEOs after all, because it turns out they do a perfectly good job when they're not paid. And he could easily leave for a much better paid job somewhere else if he wanted to, but he doesn't want the money. Although I would imagine still a significant amount of his wealth is probably already tied up in 
stock options were suggested, that he's already No, been that's the whole point. They've all vested and he's, he's sold them all. He has almost no options left to vest anymore. He doesn't need to work at all. No. Why does he work? <laughs> Anna, why is he working? Because who doesn't want to work? Wait, so if you had all your the money you needed, you would still work, I Anna? love working. No, I like literally, like, I'm a weirdo. Like, I really like working. I, yeah. I think if I had $470 million, I might spend a bit more time, like, lying on the beach. Yeah, like, maybe I'd freelance an article here and there, but I'm good. <laughs> Anna, what's your number? So my number is $2 billion, renminbi. So this is uh, Portugal uh, is the first Eurozone country to issue a renminbi denominated foreign bond which is interesting in in, in connections between Portugal and China. Is it called a panda bond? This is why I'm bringing it up because <laughs> I find it so fascinating that in most areas in the like now we realize that like you probably shouldn't have names for things that are just kind of totally racist but when it comes to foreign bonds for some reason <laughs> this just does not hold. You have like I remember studying once and I was like you're just calling these samurai bonds? Or yeah, like if, if kimchi yen, bonds? Kim, yeah, exactly. Uh, if, if it's in masala pounds, bonds? If, if it's in pounds, it's a bulldog bond. What would be American? Is Yankee that? bond. Right. Yeah, and I just like, I, I'm always just amazed when I run into these. And I'm like, we're, we're, we're okay with that? Oh, yeah, oh, no, okay. <laughs> it's a panda bond. It's a panda bond. Panda bond. Um, I think that's it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Slate Money. We have an amazing Slate Plus segment. We had four amazing segments this week, and it was tough to choose between them which one was going to become the Slate Plus segment. It turns out that the one on the Slate Plus segment is all about parental leave. So do subscribe. Keep the emails coming. We love them on slatemoney at slate.com. We have a few good questions, which we are going to answer in a future episode. So send your questions in now. What kind of questions? And like we, any kind. Any, any, any kind, kind of yeah. question. We've yeah. got one really good question about like what economics does when it operates at the margin and this kind of stuff. We have lots of good questions. We're going to try and save them up and spend the whole episode answering your questions. So... Send those questions in to slatemoney at slate.com. They will be received by the amazing producer, Jasmine Molly, who is great at keeping track of such things. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.